Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and we're picking up our conversation with Sarah Adeyinka. Sarah is a humanitarian researcher currently carrying out research on exploitation, human trafficking, and irregular migration at Ghent University in Belgium. She's also the founder of CoCreate, which is a non-governmental organization tackling the effects of human trafficking on society by focusing on the aftercare aspect. Her education, curiosity, and work have taken her to over 40 countries on five continents, and she is the co-author of a forthcoming book, which will be out this March, Nigerian and Ghanaian Women Working in the Brussels Red Light District. So last week, we ended the conversation with Sarah recounting her experiences with Médecins Sans Frontières rescuing refugees on the high seas. So speaking of Belgium, or maybe some of the other countries that you've lived in, this is where I go into my global speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. So I asked my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value this as a global speak. So before I talk about maybe Belgium, I'll talk about Tonga. Okay. Living in Tonga was just amazing. I mean, Pacific Islanders are, they're very dear to my heart because they just, they welcome you and they love you. Once you're in, you're in, you're in the family. You can never leave, you know? And I lived there in 2010 and my Tongan friends to this day are still in touch. They're like, when are you coming to visit? Okay. You're coming next year. It's not a question you're coming, you know, and we're, we're still very much family. And they, I didn't grow up in a household where you said, I love you. We didn't, you don't say that. Most African homes, you know, you don't even ask your parents, mommy, do you love me? What kind of question is that? (laughs) You know, it's like, didn't I buy you uniform? And so, you know, but you know, your parents love you, but we don't say it. Now Mm -hmm. we do. But when I was growing up, it wasn't something we used to say. But in Tonga, they would always, well, first of all, it was brother, sister, you know, toko, tahine. But then they would always say, like, like, I love you very much. Ah, okay. And would say all the time, Ofatu, all the time. You know, you'd uh, you'd hug this like big rugby player guy as you're yeah. leaving you on the head, Ofatu Sarae. And I would be like, she said, I don't know how to respond to this. And it wasn't mm-hmm. a romantic love. It's, I love you. You're my sister. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. I've taken that with me. It's stuck with me ever since. And we, even now, like if they post on my Facebook wall, on some random post, there'll be one of them who's like, Ofatu, eh? And I would be like, Ofatu. And it's just the, yeah. The brother. Yeah. So it's so, um, I love the sentiment because English has so many limitations in that because we have the word just love, right? And I think most cultures have the, the, the other types of love. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's amor, there's philly, the love of yeah. philly, philly love versus the amor love versus right. just the eros love, you know? So there's obviously three kinds of love. So it's, that's beautiful. And it sounds lovely. Say it again. It does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so, like, your language is kind of tonal as well, right? Mm-hmm. Did you pick up a lot of Tongalese? Is that yeah, I learned some Tongan when I Tongan. was there. I learned some okay. Tongan, a lot of the bad words, because that's what you learn first in any language, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I started learning Tongan, but then I left. And really, if you're not around Tongans, when are you going to use Tongan? So I lost it. 
so then when I lived in Tanzania, I picked up some Swahili, which I've also now lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Nigeria, I learned French because I went to French school for a while, just okay. because I wanted to learn French, but <laughs> I, don't, I lost a lot of it too. The one that I, in Germany, I picked up quite a bit of German, don't use it, so I've lost it. But what mm-hmm. I do have now is Dutch. Okay. And right. I mean, if I read some things in German, I still understand what they mean. But Dutch, because I speak, I don't speak it as much, but I hear it all the time. Right. And I can read it really well. And in Belgium, in, in the Netherlands, there is a lot more use of English language in official places. In Belgium, not as much. So mm. that forces you to learn the language. You know, that's, that forces you to really, okay, what does this mean? And read up and learn more. So that's been helpful. So my Dutch, the government actually paid for me to go learn Dutch. They pay for you to do an integration program and learn Dutch. So I did. And I continued to, and I'm now in the advanced level, but oh, I took okay. a break because I was like, final year of PhD, I need to focus. Yeah. 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 <laughs> do this. Proper bilingual now. Yes. yes no, I'm bilingual. Or, or tri- what do you, do you speak or Yoruba? Tri- yeah. Yeah. So you speak Yoruba, English. Speak Yoruba, English, Dutch, and some pidgin English, of course. Okay. Yes, exactly. Got it. Awesome. I'm sure you speak plenty. Yes. You know, it's, uh, that's, you're almost a polyglot. Yes, <laughs> I deceive myself into saying that I speak Chi. Oh, I really? Don't. I don't. I just understand some words, you know. So I, I talk to people, I'm like, man, pesa. And I say all these things in Chi, like feeling like I'm channeling my inner Ghanaian because I really like Ghana. But we, we welcome you. You come to Ghana when you finish. You need, we all, I mean, I think every country needs your expertise, particularly mm-hmm. around this trafficking, the migrants, and even to the extent of, preventative measure, you know, like I think part of where we need to start to look is advising policymakers to create policies that alleviate the need for this migration, alleviate the need for all of these things, right? Yes. Yes. So I want to ask you to speak a little bit more about your book and the work that went into creating the book. So it's about Ghanaian and Nigerian women and this hones in on sex workers in particular. So tell us more about that work. So in 2018, Sophie Mm -hmm. reached out to me and said, I've heard about you. You're doing research on Nigerians who were trafficked. I did research on sex workers from Edo State. Can we have a meeting? Because there's a project I would like to apply for. And I think it would be great if we apply for it together. And so at the time I was like, ah, first year of PhD, I have a lot to do already, but would be interesting. It's anything to do in, with this field I'm, I'm always interested in. So yes. Oh, and I should also mention that learning about trafficking of, excuse me, of Africans was really confronting as well, because in all my years of working on the field, the focus had always been, always been on Asia. Oh, Thai women were trafficked into this country. Mm-hmm. Oh, women are trafficked here. Oh yeah, Vietnamese women are trafficked into China. But then my own cousin was trafficked from Nigeria to Libya. And when I found out, that's when it really hit me. And I was like, wait, it's happening in Nigeria too? Because I had no idea. And so Mm -hmm. I started to read up and found that, whoa, there's so much literature on Nigerians being trafficked into Europe. And that was really confronting as well, that you're looking at things abroad, but actually it's it's really close to home. Mm -hmm. And so when Sophie... And I met, she discussed the proposal with me and basically what it was. So Brussels is a very interesting city. Like I said, Belgium is quite a complicated country Mm because Brussels to us, 
to me as a Nigerian, probably even to you as a Ghanaian, it's a small city, but it has 19 mayors. So 19 different municipalities. So you have 19 jurisdictions, one city. Wow. And I've been to Brussels. I never, well, I was more around like you, you know, the central and all that. So I wouldn't have known, but wow. Yeah. And it's for, there's really no reason to know as well, because it's, it doesn't really affect you unless you live there. Yeah. Yeah. And work in certain fields. And so I didn't even know. And then they told me and I was like, wait, 19. Lagos has over 20 million people. We have one governor, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Sophie explained to me that one of the municipalities, Scarbeck, had put forth a call about wanting research done in them on their municipality among Nigerian women specifically. Mm-hmm. So a Nigerian women working in prostitution mm-hmm. to look at what the challenges they were facing were. And actually, the original call, they were interested in seeing if they were being trafficked or not. And if they were being trafficked, what could the city do? Some NGO staff had tried to help, but they felt that they were not getting far with the women in terms of access and being trusted. And so they put forth the call. So we were like, we talked to our professors about it, Ilse and Sami, and they both said, yeah, okay, let's do it. So we prepared and Sophia and I went for the interview. And honestly, when we did the interview, (laughs) I think I was just more like, look, you need me for this thing. Like we can do it. Like this is, it's to your own advantage that you take two of us because Sophie understands so much about the Nigerian culture and Mm -hmm. Nigerian women working in prostitution. I'm Nigerian. This, my expertise is working with women who fall under this category. So actually having the two of us together is going to add value. Mm -hmm. And so we had an interview, federal police, local police, administrative police, mayor's office, all these people asking us all these different questions. And then we got the job. And so we prepared, we did our, I'm very big on security. And so what's our security plan? What's our personal exit plan? All these different things. And so we did the research. And, but one of the things we decided early on was there were a lot of Ghanaian women working there too. And how can we go and be like, oh, we're only going to talk to the Nigerian women. So we go to this window, there's a Nigerian woman. Oh, you're from Ghana, not Nigeria. Oh no, then we can't interview you. When you're working in the same area, probably having a lot of similar experiences. Mm -hmm. From the beginning, we met with the committee from the municipality and we said, we're going to be interviewing all the women who work in this area, Mm -hmm. in these areas, on these streets. And we would go into the other jurisdiction because, so you have three main streets, but they're very long streets where Mm -hmm. the black women work. Mm -hmm. And you have some of the older Belgian women who are like in their 60s. There are not many of them who work in those areas as well. Really? So there's prostitutes that are middle-aged? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. 60s, 50s. And I've been there for doing that for 20 plus years. It's their career. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Got it. And so, but we said we can't because the way the streets are, like you're walking on one street, you stop halfway and it's another jurisdiction on the same street. It becomes St. Jos. Got it. And we were like, we can't then just stop halfway and not talk to the other women on the street. So we're just going to do both jurisdictions. Sure. Yeah. And so we did. And we met so many Ghanaian women. The Ghanaian women we met were all older. I don't think we met any Ghanaian woman who was under the age of 45. Wow. Yeah, the so, so was this their second job then? So they had no, another no. job? No, no, no. This was their job. This was what they uh-huh. had been doing for years. They had been okay. living here for a long time. So had they been trafficked and then this became their work and this just was the career that they fell into or they migrated voluntarily and 
from what they said to us, they migrated voluntarily in the, mm. I think, 90s, 80s, and just have lived here ever since, mm. working mm-hmm. in the red light district. Right. And it's just work. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so we met them and we talked to them and we met the Nigerian women and we talked eight together. We, you know, it was just, we had access right away mm-hmm. because the day we went to do sort of a scouting trip, we didn't plan to do any interviews. We were introducing ourselves, handing out flyers about the research. And one lady was like, oh yeah, let's do the interview now. Like, oh, okay. So we went in and I was like, all right, we'll start. It's like, I'm here. Let's do it. Right. Yeah. She's, yeah. she's letting us in. Let's right away. Sure. So we jumped in and we did the research and we got to understand that while one of the main things that the city thought or the municipality thought was a big issue was trafficking, our biggest finding was that trafficking was not the biggest issue. The, mm. One of the biggest issues was violence against the women mm-hmm. by locals, by pretend clients, sexual violence, um, mm-hmm. and like secu- insecurity was mm-hmm. probably the biggest finding that we had in our research. Interesting. And I'm not surprised, you know, that the whole idea of the red light is you go and be your most deviant self, right? right. And, yeah. and, and I think... It, for all women who are in the business of selling their bodies, that violence is the number one issue. And that's why, you know, there's this idea of people having pimps because that's quote unquote protection. So was that structure also in place in this red light district or how does the structure work? So it was more, there were groups that would come to the women and say, if you don't pay protection money, we will smash your windows. Mm. And once they smash the windows, you have to pay a minimum 400 euros to get it fixed. So pay that 20 euros per day or 10 euros per day protection money, because if you yeah. don't, you're going to pay a lot more to be able to be so there. You smash your windows for their cars? Like where are they having Oh, oh no, no. The windows of the red light, of the brothel. Well, not oh, a the brothel. It's a carré. I, I see. It's, I see. it's called okay. a carré. It's a room. Okay. Uh, in a house. Downstairs. It's usually downstairs in these, in these houses, apartments. And you have this really tall window mm-hmm. where the women sit behind. Okay. And so it's like a showroom, you know, until people are walking by and the women are in their underwear or wow, lingerie. So shopping. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Okay. So, so they don't have to walk. Well, also makes sense because it's not, there's winter. So. Exactly. <laughs> so like you have shelter. So you, interesting. Huh. Okay, so that was the main issue. And so how long, so you did the interview phase, was it two years, was it one year? How long was were you actually in, enmeshed with the women? So they wanted, the project was to last for a year. So we had six months to do field work. Okay. Um, from September to December of 2018, we spent some time you know, in the area, just kind of walking around to visit the stakeholders, interview stakeholders about what they were doing, the information they had. And then from January till June, we went and interviewed the women. Mm-hmm. So we spoke to over 70 women, but we did 38 interviews. Okay. And it was so rich because they, once they were comfortable, once they realized we were not the police, everything was going to be anonymized. We didn't need information about their visas or residence permits, whether we didn't need all that stuff. We just wanted to know what their living conditions and working conditions were like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were able to get all that, a lot of information from the women about mm-hmm. it. 
And so I had gone to a conference in the Emisco conference in Sweden to do a presentation. And the title of my presentation was Stigma. And it was talking about stigma mm-hmm. and migrants focusing on Nigerian women from my PhD research. Mm-hmm. And somebody approached, emailed my boss from Taylor and Francis saying, we saw that Sarah is doing this presentation. We should be interested in publishing a book about it because we're doing a series and we're interested in the topic. And I was thinking, wait, what? I haven't even written the article yet. You know, like, and so my supervisor was like, maybe we can use the Scarbic project instead because there's so much we're finding. Maybe we can look into doing that. Yeah. And all of a sudden it became a book. <laughs> you know, it became a book. And we started writing and writing. So we finished the reports in French and Dutch. Mm-hmm. But then we wrote the book in English, which okay. was a lot of what is in the reports, but then some extra as well using literature. And okay. That's how the book came to be. Okay. Wow. So what is your vision for putting it out there and distributing it? Because I'm sure it's potentially an academic text. How else are you seeing and wanting this to be used as a tool in the, um, basically in, in any circles? So it is what I found. I mean, I think that's also how my writing is. I think because my background is in humanitarian aid, my writing, I think is mm-hmm. quite easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And I, academic text should be easy to understand, really, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. if we're doing research about people, then people should be able to read it. Right. And so personally, I think the book is quite easy to read, whether you're in academia or not. We use academic literature, but we really focus on the findings, which we have a lot of excerpts from the interviews, from our field notes, from what the women were saying. And I think besides academics reading it and understanding, I'll tell you one thing, one thing that's been controversial, even in the review of the book by the academics who reviewed it. One mm-hmm. of the things that came up was our choice to use the term women in prostitution as opposed mm-hmm. to sex workers. Mm-hmm. And in the book, we explain that the term sex workers denotes a legal, it has a legal element to it. When right. Right. Of sex workers, there's a, there's a, it's all legalized and there are different elements. Like in Amsterdam, they can talk about sex workers, you know, pay taxes. Here's the system. Here's how it functions. Yeah. But with the Nigerian women that we interviewed, first of all, they never called themselves sex workers. So yeah. we're not going to call them something they don't refer to themselves as. Okay. Yeah. Uh, second of all, it, it does denote a legal connotation that does not apply to these women. They fall under a different category because some of them are undocumented. The ones who are documented mostly do not want to be associated with any form of organized sex workers unions. Mm-hmm. Then there were, there, were, there were a handful who said, yeah, you know, I'm part of this union and I'm standing and I'm speaking up. But for the majority, they didn't want to be. For them, sex work was something that they did it was like a placeholder. It was something that they would do until dot, dot, mm. dot. Until I find mm-hmm. another job, until I get married, until dot, dot, dot. That was what we heard throughout. Mm-hmm. Even said, for older women. Even for older women. Everyone yep. was like... Women. Yep. In fact, one of them said, I left prostitution. I left for two years. I couldn't find a job. I found nothing. She said, for two years, I was at home looking, trying, and then I had to come back. Wow. And so... We decided we cannot call them sex workers. We're not going to call them prostitutes because that term is just so insulting. Yes. And also because, and we explain as well, for example, the, the term prostitute, if you translate it into Yoruba in Nigeria, it's the term asheo. 
I think in Ghana, you also have the term ashao, yeah. right? And the definition of both of them is not pleasant. It's somebody who is like, who slips around, who's loose or who ashao is literally somebody who changes money, money changer. Mm. And so it's a term that's used as an insult in Nigeria. Like if you're driving in traffic and you don't let somebody cut through, they're like ashao, you know, mm. they yell at you. So then the women do not and will not refer to themselves as sex workers because sex workers and prostitutes to them is the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we'll refer to them as women in prostitution, women who sell sex. And those mm-hmm. were the terms we decided to use. But even with that, with the reviews, there were there were questions about, yeah, but shouldn't you use the term sex workers? Isn't it better because this and this and this? In the European context, that works. Right. Exactly. The African women, it doesn't. Sure, sure. And in reality, you illustrated the real is this. So this is, you know, we're not going. And I love that you did that because that's very important for us to change the narrative, own right. the narrative and be able to communicate in ways that really make people think about what they're saying and how they're saying it. Yeah. And that just because existing research that advocates for women's freedom and rights talks about the rights of the sex workers. Mm-hmm. does not mean that that applies to this group because they don't consider themselves sex workers. So then where do they fall? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and so then they fall kind of through the cracks because they don't associate with this group. They're also, if they're not being trafficked, so they're in between. Mm-hmm. And because they're in between, they're on no man's land. Mm-hmm. And so how do we, who reaches out to these women, who helps them, who supports, yeah. partners with them, empowers them. And so these were, Sophia and I, we talk about it. We say there's so much we could have done with the research. We had so little time, but there's still so much we could have done because yeah, the findings and just even learning about this, it's interesting because a lot of the literature on prostitution and sex work and sex workers' rights, a lot of it is not focused on Black women. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be thinking about Black culture and the culture of the countries that these people are from mm-hmm. and how... And in our book, we talk about how prostitution is still considered shameful. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of them, it was something they didn't want to anybody to know that they were doing, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, we really just wanted to, we went in with different opinions, Sophie and I, and mm-hmm. we came out, both of us really just feeling like, wow, this is even more complicated and more complex than we thought. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. Wow. So I'm looking forward to reading the work, seeing the work, sharing it with the community around. So let me move into my mindset hack, because I think that's a great segue into that question. So this is when I ask, what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of. I mean, besides hyping myself, I do that a lot. I psych myself up. I get myself all hyped up. If I need to do something and I get nervous, I'm like, man, what? No. you know. And I start talking to myself and I'm like, girl, you got this. <laughs> it seems crazy, but it works. I'm like, ah, ah, I'm Nigerian. I don't know they carry last. Like, you have to do this. You can do this, Sarah. Besides, you know, all that stuff, I yeah. pray a lot to get myself calm or in sync. And if there's a challenge in front of me, one of the things I ask myself is what's the worst that could happen? Mm. And that really helps because it helps me not have catastrophic thinking mm-hmm. in terms of oh my God, what if it's this and this and this. I just sit down and I'm like, okay, what is the worst that could happen in this situation? If I don't get it and it goes this and this and this. And if it does, okay. So if it does, it's not going to be the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And once I have that out of the way, I feel like that helps me then see, okay, now what can I do about it? 
And I tend to do that a lot when I'm faced with a problem. What's the worst that could happen? I just sit there calmly and I check it out. I like to work out. So the pandemic has been a big challenge because I really like going to the gym. I like boxing. I like body pump. I like to train. I like strength training because it helps me when I do strength training. It just helps me. I get it. feel strong and powerful and just, you know, in there. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. So what's open in, in Ghent now? The grocery stores are open. The clothing stores are open. Um, most things are open now, except restaurants are still closed and they won't be open, at least not before April. Mm-hmm. The gyms are closed. Swimming pools mm-hmm. are open. So that's weird. Like swimming pools are open, but gyms are closed. Really? Yeah. That's strange. Right. Right. So the hairdressers were allowed to open last week. Okay. That's been good. And, you know, the barbing salons as well. But it's still, you know, we have all the gyms closed and fitness centers. We have, I'm not sure of the beauty. I don't think the beauty um, industry is open yet. You know, like pedicures and manicure salons. I don't think they're open yet either. Interesting. So how has it been? Have you been back? Have you traveled at all since COVID has hit? Since COVID, I went to the Netherlands and Italy for research. Okay. To finish my interviews. But besides that, no, I was here for Christmas. I didn't go anywhere because, yeah, my family yeah. is in the U.S. and Nigeria. So yeah, I couldn't visit. It. I've mostly been home. Yeah. I've mostly just been here at home in Ghent, working from home as well. I've been working from home since March. Right. And so class-wise, I mean, I think you're probably out of... Are you teaching as well? No, I'm anyway. I only just teach as a guest speaker, so I don't do a lot of teaching at all. In Belgium, if you are not a... Dutch speaker in Flanders, the part of, of Belgium I live in, Flanders, then you don't do you don't much have- in terms of education as a PhD student. So. Oh, that's great, actually. Kind I of. know. I was like, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> 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 wow. Nice, 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 nice. So we're getting to the end of our conversation. This has been great. I feel like I've just opened the door to a whole new world of information and understanding about People I see every day, you know, I mean, this is real because I'm here and I go to Legos, I go, you know, so I, again, appreciate the work that you're doing in educating the world on what's going on, you know, what real life is about for a number of, a huge segment of people, because I think we don't recognize that the category of people who are in prostitution and I want to say alternative income stream lifestyles abroad in particular is much larger than we think and have issues that you know are very easy to sweep under the rug and they need they need a, a someone to shine a light like people like yourself so thank you for that but I want to ask you a question something less about I'm glad you shared you you like to work out like to go to the gym I'm sure you probably don't have a lot of time for reading except for work but what do you do in your your free time are you a, a listener are you a watcher what is your leisurely? I cook. You're a cook? I cook. I cook. I really like to cook. And recently I started baking. In fact, I can smell the bread that I just baked. I'm like, <laughs> yes. And I mean, baking takes so long. So for the bread, I just got, bought a bread maker and it makes it so much easier. Oh, and nice. yeah, and now I started baking and I'm enjoying baking too. But okay. I cook, I bake and I watch. So I watch, I like to watch things that have a happy ending. Because my job and my life exposes me to situations that are not happy. So I need to watch something. If I watch a crime series, then it's like The Mentalist, which has humor, 
because mm-hmm. Patrick Jane is just a weirdo. And it ends like, you know, the crime, they find the criminal, but he uses humor and he's stubborn and it's great. But I mm-hmm. need something that ends and ends well because mm-hmm. I like just, I need it. We're not going to watch Power. That's just like, yes. no, yeah, exactly. It's like too stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I used to watch a lot of NCIS because I find it interesting. But then, you know, I live alone and I was like, uh-uh, all this crime, people breaking in into people's houses, living in, I can't do this anymore. So okay. I watch Happy Ending. Yes, Happy Ending series, my thing. Okay, okay. And so what, besides bread, what are you, what's your favorite thing to cook? I cook, okay, look, let's not get into this whole jollof rice conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nigerian versus Ghana jollof. Can we have both? <laughs> what? So let's just yeah. have both. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. The yeah. Tuesday is Ghanaian, Wednesday. Exactly. Is, Thursday is Senegalese. Oh, so yes. Yes, we have to like not we have to remember that all of our West African peaks is great. Oh yeah. my gosh, African food, yes. So oh, I yeah. I mean I'll make Nigerian meat pies or cook some stew or some jollof rice or yeah, I just, I really enjoy cooking. It relaxes me. I don't even like people helping me when I cook. Yeah. Yeah. Me so too. I, I'm, yeah. 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 So I, just I mean, happy. I was just realizing that I haven't eaten anyone else's food since the COVID. Wow. Like, isn't that before wow. COVID, I traveled, I was in the UK Yeah. and I was eating out there, but since I've been back. Yeah. It's just your own food. Yeah. Which is a revelation, not a revelation. I like my food, so I yeah. don't have a but it's yeah. just the fact that I'm like, wow, I can really just not have to eat other, you know, it's nice when people cook for you, but yeah, but it's like, yeah, you like your own food. Yeah. I'm the exactly. same. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And oh, I'm in a, a group. It's called Women of Color Writing Accountability Group, WalkWag. Okay. I know personally, the group has been a lifesaver for me. I joined in March at the beginning of the lockdown and we would just come on Zoom and work at the same time. So you had somebody working with you virtually. Oh, wow, that's a cool idea. Yeah, and it's all Black women and they're mostly in the US, but then there are a few in the UK and there's me here. And we all just log on at different times and there's always someone. Sometimes just an open room. Wow, it's like clubhouse before the clubhouse but you can exactly. see but you can see and then we started a happy hour and nice. and so the group has been amazing with you know helping me because I'm here like working by myself day in day out and I just log on and there's somebody in the group working and we all just yeah we support each other that's really nice. that's awesome that's awesome I love that I love that so good for you kudos 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 well Sarah Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your story. We will have, again, rich show notes, folks. Please have a look at Sarah's website because it's so lovely. I loved it. And it's her full name, .com, sarahadiginka.com, where she tells her story. You can donate to her NGO. And show notes will have a link to the book as well as a lot of the organizations that Sarah's been involved with. So be sure to catch that. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. So Yes, yes. So, Global Citizens, that's going to do it for this episode. You can catch us with a new episode every Tuesday at www.globalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please do share, like, subscribe, tell somebody, recommend a guest. We love to hear from you. So, until next time, bye for now. Bye.